You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. One of my favorite things to talk about is, uh, it's called the Law of Limerence. Anybody know what the Law of Limerence is? I love talking about this. I talked about it a couple years ago at church. I'm doing it again. Uh, I'm going to read you the definition. Here it is. Uh, Limerence. An involuntary state of mind, which seems to result from a romantic attraction for another person, combined with an overwhelming obsessive need to have one's feelings reciprocated. That is what limerence is. I like to expand the definition of limerence to include a non-romantic relationship, best friend relationships, of those people you call your spirit animals. Those are, 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 are limerence relationships. Uh, we've all probably experienced limerence <laughs> at one point or another. Um, when I was dating Juby, my wife, uh, when she called me, like my day, like my day was was good, right? Like you guys know what I'm talking about. Like I had the best day. Like I could have lost my job and contracted leprosy, but if my wife, if Juby, called when I was we were dating, I was thrilled. Like it, it made my day completely. And then you know, limerence is when uh, you know when she didn't call when she was at work or something was going on. I was certain that she wanted to break up with me. I was like, oh, she wants to. That's limerence. Okay, that's limerence. Anybody ever experienced limerence? experience that feeling. It doesn't have to be just romantic relationships. Uh, although, I mean, you know, it's the person that you're like, uh, you're dating this person and you're like, oh, isn't it cute? They only shower twice a month to conserve water. And you're like, no, that's not cute. It's disgusting. But limerence clouds your mind. It, it does. Uh, it's your best friend that you want to watch movies with all the time. Oh, my buddy, I'm going to text my buddy. We're going to watch this movie marathon. It's going to be amazing. Or um, it's that person that you want to talk to about Central America forever and ever, amen, because you both love Central America so much. Limerence is the person that you dream about, um, and when you wake up, you're disappointed it was just a dream. That's limerence. That's it, right? Beware of limerence. (laughs) Beware of it. You know, uh, they've studied people who are in this limerence stage, and what they've found out is that the chemicals that are happening in your brain during this time of limerence, they're the same chemicals a heroin addict might have if they're looking for their next hit. That is what's going on in your brain at the time. Beware of limerence, because limerence, it fades. Limerence goes away. Usually in about 12 to 18 months, limerence ends, and then you are just left with a relationship. And you're left with a relationship, and you basically have two choices to make. The first choice that you have to make is whether or not this relationship will even continue. That's a choice that you have to make. And so, in a good way, a lot of the time, relationships will end after limerence is over. So that person that smelled really, really bad, you probably break up with them because they're only showering twice a month, right? Um, you know, the phone calls that we were so excited to get, now we see that name on our phone and we go, ah, and maybe we don't pick up. I pick up, you don't pick up, all right? You don't. Um, and, you know, when, when, when limerence starts to fade, you know, we don't want to do movie marathons with our buddy. We want our buddy to spend more time with, with their spouse because that's what they should be doing, not hanging out with us. And, and you, you know, we don't want to talk about Central America. We have other passions that we love because when limerence ends, sometimes the relationship ends as well. There's a, a friend of mine who, uh, she said, Man, I love this. I love this woman. Um, uh, you know, she was my best friend. She was a sister from another mister and all the rest. And she goes on and on. She goes, but when that limerence period was over, uh, I recognized that the only thing we had in common were, was the fact that we did drugs together. And so she was like, that was a really terrible synergy. And that relationship needed to end. Sometimes relationships need to end when limerence ends. 
But then there's another option. And the other option is to actually get into the good stuff. The other option is to power through. And the other option is to continue the journey when limerence is over. Because really the limerence part of your relationship, that first 12 to 18 months, doesn't matter. That's the fake stuff. If we decide to keep it going, if we decide to move forward, if we decide to push on, that's where the real goodness happens. That's where the selfless love begins to happen. That's where real meaning takes place. That's where you sit in pain with other people. That's where you've made a decision. And the decision is, you know what? This person that I'm with or this thing has, has, has not changed and they're not going to change. And I want them to change in all these ways and they're not gonna do it. And yet I choose to be with this person anyway, despite the flaws and all the difficulties and all the struggles, whether it be a friend, whether be a coworker, whether it be a spouse, whether it be a significant other. You decide, I'm going to do this. And so what happens is like you guys will get into fights and like, you know, you'll go to bed and right before you fall asleep, you know, you'll say like, uh, you know, I don't like you, like right before you fall asleep. And yet you wake up and you do it again together the next day. And with your friend, it's the friend you say, you know, maybe we do need to take a break. You need to spend more time with your spouse, but I'm still putting on your calendar, uh, you on my calendar. You're still valued because what happens when limerence ends and we continue with the relationship and we, we start to reflect Christ. The relationship starts to reflect the selfless love of Christ. That's what starts to happen. We're in our rhythm series. And in our rhythm series, we're talking about fixed ropes, things that we're, we, want, we want to hold on to in the midst of storms. And so in this rhythm series, I've talked about prayer. I said our prayer is a fixed rope, something that we should do daily, a simple prayer, right? I said just praying to God that God would keep us here in the moment, not having us look back or look forward, but but leaving us right here. Uh, I, I've said that a great rhythm, a great fixed rope is to give, and I really believe that, and I challenged everyone to give $10 for 10 weeks, uh, and you could still do that. I believe it's a good rhythm. Uh, last week, I talked about scripture, and based on emails and conversations, I think I freaked a couple people out. It's okay. Uh, but I want to tell you, there's incredible truth in what I talked about. Um, there, there's truth in scripture. There's truth in the gospel, and I believe scripture when it says it cannot be broken. And so I think scripture is an incredible rhythm, and so something incredible to be a part of. And today, I want to talk about the church. I want to talk about why the rhythm of attending church, going to church, is worthwhile. And so maybe I'm talking to the wrong group of people, because you're the ones that actually made it out on Marathon Sunday. Impressive. So pass this podcast to your friends or whatever. I don't know. But uh, I think it's worthwhile. I think it's worth listening to. So what does, what does going to church have to do with the law of limerence? Well, What's interesting to me is when Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, right? When he writes this letter, he speaks to Jesus' love for the church in terms of a relationship. I think that's interesting. Not only a, a relationship, but a marriage relationship, which I think is even more interesting. So I'll read it again, what, what, what Frank wrote earlier. This is what uh, Paul says. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word and, pre- and present her to himself as a radiant church without, slain, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. All right, so Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus and he's saying, you know what, husbands love your wives. And if you were here this, this summer, I did a whole message on, on husbands loving their wives and submission and all the rest using this passage. And I'm gonna use this passage again because I think it informs us so well as to the relationship that we can have to the church. But what's going to be important for us is, is reminding ourselves or recognizing once again what 
the relationship between man and woman looked like at the time of Ephesus. So if you remember, if you were here, I said that a woman was usually 16, 17, 18 years old, and the husband was usually in his 30s. I said that. I said this relationship was purely transactional. It was something that happened so that you would produce legitimate children. In fact, I, I quoted this writer, uh, Desmothenes, who says, mistresses we, uh, and this he's writing in the second century, and he says, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. So this is the context for what is happening at the time where, where Paul says, hey, I need you guys to love each other like Christ loves the church. Women weren't even allowed to sit at tables with their husbands. The table was the great equalizer. If you sat at a table, it meant you were an important person and the wife could not sit at the table with her husband. In fact, the husband would not even start talking to his fellow cohorts until the wife left the room. That's how much say or how much love a woman had at the time. And yet... Paul says, I want you to love, I want you to love this person like Christ loves the church. There's a relationship here, like Christ loves the church. So let's talk about how Christ loves the church. Let's talk about the church for a second, okay? Here is a promise that I'm going to make you, and it's a promise that I'm going to have a really easy time keeping. I promise you that the church will always be a mess. I promise. I promise you that the church will always be imperfect, I promise. And you know what? I have an easy time keeping that promise. I really do. The church has always been a mess. Jesus, you know, Jesus, he talks about sending people to lakes of fire and pits of hell. You know who Jesus was talking to? Church people. He wasn't talking to the other people. He's talking to people who were in charge of the church, people who went to church. That's who Jesus was talking to. Um, First Corinthians talks about division in the church. In Ephesus, there was division in the church. In Galatians, division in the church. Division in the church has been there from the very beginning of time. This is amazing, right? Like, it's always been about uniformity and not unity. And so what Jesus is saying, uh, what Paul's saying, is saying Jesus loves the church in a unified way, not in a uniform way. The church has always been a mess. I mean, we have killed people in the name of God, the church. We've oppressed people in the name of God, the church. We have stopped people from flourishing in the name of God, the church. Raise your hand, and it's okay. I'll raise mine too. If in some way the church has hurt or messed with you or you've struggled with it in some capacity, I think a lot of us here would feel that way. It's because we are imperfect. And yet in our imperfection, we are loved. In our imperfection, we are loved in such a way that Jesus says, church, I see you and I see the mess you are and I see how imperfect you are and I show you grace upon grace upon grace. You have my grace. And Jesus says, I see you, church, and I see how imperfect you are and what I do is I submit to you. I submit to you fully, which means I'm selflessly loving you. I'm putting you, church, before myself, even though you're imperfect, even though you're a mess, uh, in the book of Hosea, right, uh, there's, this, there's this beautiful picture of, of, um, of what God thinks of Israel. And basically, this guy Hosea has to marry a prostitute, and the prostitute keeps cheating on him. And God says, this is the church. <laughs> That's it. And yet I love it anyway. And Jesus says, I love it anyway. I submit to it anyway, over and over again. Jesus says, I love the church so much, the imperfect, messy church, that I submit to this church in death. I die for this church. So that his church can be looked at as holy and blameless. And then, he's, and then Jesus says, you know what? I love this church, this imperfect church so much that I now call on this imperfect church to bring God's kingdom. 
I call on this imperfect church to bring God's perfect peace. I use it for that reason. So church, I call on you to give hope upon hope to millions and millions of people like nobody else can. And church, I call on you to mourn with those who mourn. I call on you to mourn well with others. And church, I call you to cry out for injustice when others can't cry out. And church, I call you, I call you to be a light, this, this light that is love, that, that's, that's, that's true love, that's, that's not judgmental love, that's selfless love when everybody else around the world is saying, what you got for me? That's what I'm calling you to do. And I'm calling you to do that because I believe church, messy, imperfect church, I believe that you can bring the goodness of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus says. And you know what, church? Now I'm talking to us. On our best days, I think we do it. On our best days, I think us, our imperfect church, I think we give hope to millions upon millions. Well, maybe not millions upon millions. But we give hope. Absolutely. On our best days, we mourn with those who mourn. On our best days, we do that, church. On our best days, you know what we do? We cry out for injustice. On our best days, we love people really well. We are imperfect, and we are messy, and we are called to be part of this kingdom. But I think for some of us, and here's the deal, I think for some of us, me included, I'll include myself in this, the limerence, the good feelings, the fuzzy feelings, the butterflies in the stomach that we had about church maybe at one point in our lives, maybe that we've had about this church at one point in our lives, has passed. It's passed. We got decisions to make. I I know me, I'll I'll confess, and and I I know other people here have struggled. We say, okay, I I don't feel the same way about church that I used to, so maybe I need to give it up. Maybe, Maybe that's the decision I make in limerence. I know some of us are sitting there going, you know what, I, I don't know, I'm not sure what to do. I, I don't quite know how to, how to move in this church yet, and I don't know how to commit to it. I don't know if I could commit to it the same way that Jesus commits to his bride, the church. Well, I get that. I really get that. We live in New York City, which means on any given Sunday, we can go do whatever we want, and it's absolutely world-class. <laughs> we can can listen to world-class music, go to a world-class museum, see a world-class park, eat at a world-class taco truck. It does not matter. <laughs> we can do that on a Sunday because we live here. And you know what? It might actually give us a different feeling. Right? It might actually bring those butterflies back. It might fill us in a way that we used to feel when we went to church. We, I don't know. Maybe. I get that. I've been there. I've been there. How many people feel like they're running 100 miles an hour Monday through Friday? Yeah, me too. And yet you all are here. I'm really impressed. But you know what the easy thing to do is? The easy thing is to say, I run 100 miles an hour Monday through Friday, and now I need Sunday, and I need to chill. I need to chill. And I get that. I've been there. I've absolutely been there. If you have kids, there's some of us going, you don't even understand. My kids wake up in the morning, and they're weird, and you know they put clothes on top of clothes and they want to wear flip-flops in 30 degree weather and by the time I actually get them into the building like I'm fried and I'm a mess and I'm it's a miracle that I made it like and I'd rather just not come because it's easier just to just to relax and I get that I've been there I've been there I think for so many of us you know uh, we want to get out of this city I want to get out of this city about once every six weeks about once every six weeks I'm like I have got to go I feel that and we all feel that and I get that I get that so yeah, we're going to do that instead of being at church. I understand that. And I think there are the times where we say, well, I worshiped uh, by serving at the Bowery and, uh, and I listened to the sermon on the podcast and I listened to some worship music on the roof of my building. So I think I'm good for this week. 
right? I get that. I've done that. I've been there too. And here's what I'm going to say to all this, and it might be a little bit uncomfortable, okay? But I'm going to say it anyway. I'm going to say that none of those things are bad. In fact, all those things, there's a time and a place for all those things, and there's a time and a place for all those things on Sunday. I absolutely believe that. But I'm going to say that if we continue making decisions to listen to a podcast at the gym and to listen to worship music on the roof and to say that's enough, I'm not saying that, that we're, we're bride, or we're the bride of the church, or we're treating our church like a bride. We're treating our church like something else, something that's convenient. That's what I think we're doing. And if we're going to talk about this metaphor, if we're going to talk about Jesus as, as uh, the church as a bride, well, then maybe what we're doing is we're making late night phone calls to the church. <laughs> maybe what we're doing is making booty calls to the church. <laughs> Netflix and chill with the church. <laughs> and I say this telling you that I'm confessing this to you that I do the same thing. And I've absolutely done the same thing. I have used the bride of Christ for my own convenience. I have used the bride of Christ when it makes sense for me to have the bride of Christ. I've used the bride of Christ when, when I feel like it. And sometimes I just don't feel like it. And so when I do that, I'm saying, you know what? Limerence is over and instead I'm deciding that I'm just going to end this relationship, but I'll keep it around for those late night phone calls. That's what we're saying to the church, to the bride. And I wonder if it's time for me, and I'll confess this, I wonder if it's time for me to say, you know what, this is, this is not just, just somebody that's over there that I use at my own convenience. This is, this is the bride of Christ. This is something that brings hope to millions. This is something that, that allows people to mourn together. This is something that brings good news. This is something that brings infinite love. Maybe I need to give it more. And if you resonate with that in any way, maybe we need to give it more. I, uh, I used to live in Philadelphia. And uh, one of the best things, one of the funniest things that ever happened in Philly, I'm not going to do this story justice, was at a path mark in South Philly. And I'm at this path mark and I'm shopping and there was this couple, I promise you, they must have been 100. I promise. They were so old. I was so amazed at how they were still walking and stuff. And, and the, the, the husband had a cane, and the wife was like shuffling, like, you know. Like, and the, they were in the bread aisle, and I was in the bread aisle. The husband picks up bread. And the wife goes, you idiot, we can't eat that bread. And she just screams it. And I was like, Whoa. And she goes, you can't eat that. That bread will back you up. And then the husband, the husband curses. And he goes, God, Lillian, I've had it up to here with you. And he starts screaming at her. And he goes, I'm done with you. You're ridiculous. He's just yelling. And this, this couple that is like, not, like 100 are yelling at each other in the bread aisle loudly. Like really loud. And I was just like this. It was amazing. It was so amazing. And, uh, and then uh, I got online to pay, and I got online to pay. And, um, and as I got online to pay, they were a little bit in front of me, and they weren't really arguing or yelling. But then uh, I'm online as they leave. And so they're leaving, and the husband's holding a bag, and he's got his cane in, in a hand. And then, and then as they leave, they're in the parking lot, and, and the wife, like, shuffles up, you know? Like, shuffles up to him. Shuffle, shuffle. And then puts her arm around his, and puts her head on his shoulder. That's the church. <laughs> That's it.
That's where we need to go with this thing. That's what we can do as a church. We can be that couple. But we don't get there without the fighting. We don't get there without the discipline of saying, I'm just going to do this, even when I don't feel like doing it. We don't get to do it without going to bed some nights and saying, you know what, I don't like you. But then waking up in the morning and doing it all over again. We can be that church. We can absolutely be the church that God calls us to be when God calls us to give hope to millions. We can be that church that God calls us to be when he says mourn with those who mourn, bring perfect love to those who need it. We can be that church. But we need to fight. We need to show up. We need to be disciplined. We need to go through some of those battles in order to get to the good stuff, the selfless stuff, the stuff that Christ brings when Christ dies and is resurrected so that we can be seen as holy and blameless. We can be that church. I'm going to leave you today with some words from uh, a woman named Rachel Held Evans who is a writer. She writes in her book, Searching for Sunday, something that I thought was just poignant and beautiful. And I want you to meditate on this. Uh, It's going to be on the screen. You can read it with me. You can pray through this if you want to. Um, But I want to end here. So this is what she says. What might a woman say about the church as a body and bride? Perhaps she, the church, would speak of a regular body and the way it moves through the world, always changing and never perfect. Capable of nurturing life, not simply through the womb, but through hands, feet, eyes, voice, and brain. Every part is sacred. Every part has a function. Perhaps she would speak of impossible expectations and all the time she, the church, is wasted trying to contort herself into the shape of those amorphous silhouettes that flit from magazines and billboards into her mind. Perhaps she, the church, would speak of the surprise of seeing herself, flaws and all in the mirror on her wedding day. Or of the reality that with new life comes dry heaves, dirty diapers, snotty noses, late night arguments, and a whole army of new dangers and fears she has never even considered before because life giving isn't nearly as glamorous as it sounds, but it's a thousand times more beautiful. Perhaps she, the church, would talk about being underestimated, about surprising people and surprising herself, or about how there are moments when her own strength startles her and moments when her weakness, her forgetfulness, her fear, her exhaustion unnerve her. Or maybe she would explain how none of the categories created for her sum her up or capture her essence. This is the church. Here she is, lovely and irregular, sometimes sick and sometimes well. This is the body like no other that God has shaped and placed in the world. Jesus lives here. This is his soul's address. There's a lot to be thankful for, all things considered, because she's taken a beating, the church. And every day, she, the church, meets the gates of hell, and she prevails. And every day, she serves and stumbles and injures and repairs. And that she is healed is an underrated miracle. And that she continues to give birth is beyond recognizing. So maybe it's time to make peace with her, the church. Maybe it's time to embrace her, the church. What as she is. Maybe it's time for limerence to end. Maybe it's time to make church a rhythm. Maybe it's time to make church a bride. Amen? Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for this, this imperfect mess that you've given us. We thank you for each other, a bunch of imperfect messes in the midst of it all. I thank you that we're here to worship, to celebrate. And Lord, I pray that, um, that you would continue to walk with us as we are this messy, imperfect church. That you would continue to use us to bring your kingdom little by little, step by step. And I pray that we would invest in this. I pray that we would give time to it and be disciplined in it. 
And I pray that you would show us grace along the way. Give us the breaks along the way we need to. And thank you, Lord, for your death, your resurrection, and the unending love and mercy that comes with it. We pray this in your name. Amen.